Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. Hey all, and welcome to another installment of Back to the Bins. I think this is episode, what did we decide this episode was? 70! 70. 70, dude! That doesn't really work. (laughs) That doesn't work. (laughs) My name is Michael Bailey. And I am Scott Gardner. And this is another early morning edition of Back to the Bins. Yeah. We are struggling to stay ahead, so that is resulting in us having to record at odd hours. <laughs> at least odd hours to us. We're used to recording at like 1 o'clock in the morning. So, I almost called in a UFO sighting for this big yellow ball that's up there in the sky right now, and then, then you told me that that was actually something called the sun, and I guess it's supposed to be there. So, <laughs> Our people do not know the sun of which you speak. <laughs> we like things cold and dark, though it's cold here this morning. God. We're getting we're getting right into fall here in Georgia. So I woke up this morning and I was freezing, which was awesome because <laughs> I wasn't hot. <laughs> I can tell I have a hell of a lot of acclimating to do because people were coming in last night going, uh, "Yeah, it sure is cool outside. It's down to eighty five, and I'm thinking, "Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, it's down to eighty five. Wow, oh my God." Down to it, really? Yeah. Oh god, it's cool, and they want you know, like we're gonna have to break out the jackets. I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I'm ready to strip down to my underpants because it's 85, and they're ready to throw on you know jackets. It's crazy. That's actually what happened to me the other morning. I had to open, and you stripped down to your underpants? No. Oh. No, they they would fire me for that. Probably. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Maybe somebody gets a kick out of it, but. It was Sunday morning, it was like 7 o'clock, and it's chilly, but I'm in a short sleeve shirt, and I'm comfortable as hell, and the guy who was opening with me comes out in his jacket, he goes, you're from the north, aren't you? I'm like, (laughs) hell yeah. He's like, so this isn't cold to you? I go, not at all. (laughs) And I'm not trying to be like the typical northern douchebag that comes to the south and wants to tell everybody how they did it back in Cleveland. See, I've same. heard you make that remark before, and it suddenly occurred to me, I think I'm one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old Louis Grizzard. Oh, I know. Uh, I know. A bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the Sage of the South. Not as much as I'd like to be, because you know he's one of those guys that I don't know much about, but everything I, I've ever heard or read or whatever from him strikes me as something that I'd probably get a real kick out of, so I, I need to discover more of him at some point. If you're- if you're going to read anything and it go, it'll breeze by in like a night, uh, track down if love or oil, I'd be about a quart low, which is kind of about his life growing <laughs> up and the relationships he royally screwed up. So, 
there, there's two guys like that that I've always meant to to get more into, and it's him. And I'm gonna draw a blank on the other guy's name. It's Gene. Oh, I can't remember his name. He's the guy that wrote um, um, a Christmas story. A Christmas story. Yeah. What was the Shepherd book? Something, something, all others pay cash. In God We Trust, all others pay cash is, was the book that Christmas Story spun out of. What What did you say his name was? I, I want to say Shepherd. Shepherd, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I should know that name because he actually, uh, he was the voice, uh, he's the current voice of Father in uh, the Carousel of Progress, which is my favorite, uh, mm. favorite Disney attraction. Everything goes back to Disney. It does. It does. I can tie it all back. Gee, you can do it with Superman. I can do it with Disney. I can, I can do Superman with iCarly, for crying out loud. Oh, good Lord. The the, the lead girl in iCarly, Miranda Cosgrove, that was... That hot, uh, dark-headed girl? Is she the yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah, the, the one that just turned 18. Yeah. Um. And she's hot regardless. I mean, I can say she's hot. Doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, go Sorry, stalk her I, or something. She was... The five-year-old Lana Lang in the Smallville pilot. That's right. I heard you say that recently. Yeah, that's. And right. I discovered that I'm like, does everything I that I watch, even that should like be so far removed from Superman, it's not even funny, come back to Superman? <laughs> and the answer, the answer is yes. Oh my God! You just made me think of something. We need to totally do an episode of, of Back to the Bins where we do nothing but play like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but do it with superheroes. Cause I love that game, you know, where you can tie like say, all right, quick, you know, tie the quick bunny to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, and you can do shit like that if you think about it long enough. You know, I love playing that game. So, <laughs> so you are first this time out. All right. It suddenly occurred to me that uh, I'm traveling back to the exact same year as last episode, um, this time to the month of November for 1993 for a DC comic. This oh, is, <laughs> this is uh, Detective Comics number 668. Features a horrible cover by uh, Kelly Jones. Uh, I'm sorry, I do not dig this dude's art and... Uh, you know, in the long, proud history of Detective Comics, um, I think his covers are the absolute worst. I just, ugh, they're atrocious. Especially because probably Graham Nolan did the interior art. Yeah, and yeah, I was just going to say, you know, but it's countered by really, really nice art on the interior. It is. It's Graham Nolan and uh, Scott Hanna on inks. And I like Scott Hanna's inks pretty well. Um, not so crazy about the color, but... Uh, uh, you know, it's not too bad. It's uh, Adrian Roy uh, as the colorist. Uh, written by Chuck Dixon, who oh. I almost always like. Um, this is a story called Runaway. And this one grabbed me right off the bat. You know, this is definitely, this is right in the Jean-Paul, is it Valley or Valet? Uh, I've heard Jean-Paul Valley. Valley. All right, that so, works. Uh... So this is right in that period where he has just taken over from Batman. Um this is definitely in the period where I had just walked away from the Bat books. So this is my first time reading this story. And I was, you know, this came up again. You know, I do use a random number generator to pick my comics. So this just came up, luck of the draw. And I was kind of half and half on it. I was like, well, you know, I do kind of miss reading Batman. And I was kind of familiar with this area, or this era rather. But I don't really like this particular Batman. I don't know if I'm going to like this. But it starts out... With just, you know, a, a really cool beginning, which is 
we see the new Batman and his eyes are huge. He's at the wheel of the, uh, the Batmobile and we turn the page and he's about to smash head on with an oncoming subway train. The <laughs> Batmobile is actually traveling the rails, you know, like, a you know, it's a Batmobile on the tracks, you know, the train tracks and he's cursing, uh, who he calls the damn hunchback. And I'm trying to remember what was that guy's name? The, the hunchback dude that worked for Batman Howard or something like that. Anyway, um, he's cursing him. So apparently this was an invention of Harold. That Harold that's it. And, uh, he pulls a really cool maneuver. He pulls this lever kind of looks like the uh, hyperspace lever in the millennium Falcon punches a button and his chair that he's sitting in, you know, the cockpit type of thing actually lifts up, swivels around, turns around and the Batmobile has like these emergency thrusters and they go off like a rocket and he shoots off in the opposite direction. It's a really cool sequence, great visual, really nicely drawn. And the scene changes to a little while later where uh, the firemen have come and they're using foam uh, to put out the fire. And there's even a great part where they're saying, you know, we can't use water you know, because the, the tracks are electrified. And they're trying to figure out what happened here. And they think that it was a terrorist bombing. You know, because of the terrific, you know, explosion that came out of the Batmobile, you know, with the thrusters going off. They don't realize that it was, you know, Batman's car. And we get a, a scene with um, with Tim, Tim Drake, where he comes home. And this was during that time where his father had gone missing and everything. I kind of vaguely remember this storyline. His father was kidnapped. Oh, okay. And he talks to Mrs. What's her name? Mac. He calls her Mrs. Mac. Uh, I think her name is Ms. McIntyre or something like that. She tells him that he got a, a letter in the mail and he opens it up and he got his driver's license. And it's a special kind of driver's license because he's not um, 16 yet. And he's very excited about it. And he instantly runs out of the house and he's headed somewhere. And we kind of have an idea where he may be headed just by the way the story reads. There's a scene with this uh, sleazy gangster guy where uh, he's hiring the new what what he actually gives them their name he calls them the Trigger Twins and they do do they do look like the classic DC uh, Trigger Twins uh, but they're bad guys you know they're guns for hire and uh, he tells them that he has a special job that he has in mind just for them something he's been working on for a while which is this idea of robbing the money train. So we get just a tease for all that. But the main part of the story involves, from here on, Tim, now dressed as Robin. And I, I must note that uh, Graham Nolan does a spectacular job in this entire sequence of Robin sneaking into the Batcave. He really apes um, both Tom Lyle's style from the uh, those Robin miniseries that came out. And I can also see elements of Tom Grummet's style. Now, Tom Grummet would do the uh, the Robin uh, series, ongoing series, that is going to start like right after the, the end of this issue. And Robin sneaks into the Batcave, and he has come there specifically because he wants wheels. And he's looking around at kind of the uh, the nature of the Batcave, you know, it's, it's been kind of smashed up and 
it looks like Jean Paul's really not taking care of the place or anything. And then he notices that uh, he's actually made some changes to it. And one of the things he's installed is a shooting range that has like cardboard cutouts of some of Batman's rogues gallery. And it's obvious that he's been practicing using this range. And Rob, uh, Robin says, well, this isn't good. So he goes over to like the parking garage part of the Batcave. That part's really neat because you see all these other Batmobiles. And, you know, one of them is the one from your know, early, early Batman adventures, um, probably in the forties. Another one that we see just the, the, the nose of is obviously the one from the 60s TV show, which I always liked. I always thought that was a great Batmobile. And then he pulls back um, this uh, drape, and it's the Red Bird, which, again, I really like. That car is really cool. And the one moment that really made me laugh out loud reading this, though is Jean-Paul is working on the Bat Rail car, whatever you call it, and he looks up and he sees this light going off. Um, it's just, you know, this red light blinking and it's making the noise. Kind of, It kind of reminded me of like Superboy's light, you know, the lamp that would go off when the Legion would contact him or something. <laughs> but it's literally like the cheapest thing that you would see. It's It's one of those things where it's a little bare bulb. In a little housing, and then you can see the wire running down the wall into it. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty shit for Bruce Wayne, who's like multi-billionaire. You know, you would think that he could put in some really cool, you know, blinky light things, you know, some LEDs. <laughs> it's just this bear, but it looks so cheap and cheesy. It's really kind of kind of funny when I saw it. So he uh, he realizes that there's an intruder in the cave, and he goes to find out who it is. And of course, this leads to him and Robin having you know heated words, and and they get into a tussle. Basically, um, this new Batman, for reasons I can't remember, uh, doesn't like Robin at all. Has no use for him, and tells him basically, "Get out of my house! You're not welcome here anymore." And they get into a big fight. And uh, Robin's, you know, telling him what a disgrace he is to the, you know, to the bat symbol and all that. And uh, at first it looks like Robin's doing a pretty good job of of holding his own and everything. But then uh, Jean-Paul retreats into the dark. And as Robin's looking around trying to fight him, he lands on his back, knocks him to the ground. And on the great last page, which is really, really cool because Batman, the new Batman, really totally looks like a uh, Graham Nolan drawing. But the Robin that he's holding up by the neck, you know, Darth Vader style, totally looks like a Tom Grummet Robin. And he's he's, uh, yelling at Robin saying, they will fear me as they never feared him. And uh, the cliffhanger says, uh, continued in Robin number one. And wow, this, you know, it was, it was actually really good. It was kind of a mixed bag of emotions for me because this is definitely not an era of Batman that I liked very much, you know, which is evidenced by the fact that I dropped the books. This, you know, I'd read Batman for, I can't even tell you how many years up to this point, but it finally just got to a breaking point for me where, where I walked away from the books so it's neat to go back and look at this now, you know, all these years later, you know, 17 years later and, and 
kind of try to come back to it, remembering story elements and things like that. I didn't hate it. It was actually interesting. What helped was that, you know, really uh, spectacular sequence at the beginning with the Batmobile. You know, I really liked that. I like it when Batman thinks ahead as far as gadgets and things like that. And the, the idea that the Batmobile could do this thing where the cockpit could totally swivel like that and then just head off in the other direction. That was kind of a cool idea. I liked that. Um, I liked the fight between Robin and the new Batman. I like uh, the art in this issue was really good, really top-notch stuff. Um, we got just enough of the uh, the B-plots and the... Uh, you know, the standard running, what were probably standard running subplots and things. There was even a little development with the Joker that I kind of breezed by. <laughs> but the big thing for me is I got to realizing that, you know, I think I would have had a greater tolerance for the new Batman if his, if his scheme had just been a little bit different, his design. Because it's not really that he's the, a bad character or anything. I think the thing that, that kills me is even at the time when this was happening, I thought, wow, this is 90s. You know? And going back and looking at it now, it's, it's really cringeworthy. He, he looks awful. You know, I love the new mask. I, I really think that Batman looks cool with a Spider-Man style mask where it's the full face. I, I, I think that this would have been an interesting look for, for Batman to have permanently adopted, you know, even going into the, the Bruce Wayne Batman. But what doesn't work for me is the, all the gold in it. And then, uh, all the Liefeld pockets that, that really looks wacky. And I never liked the big gauntlet things either. I never understood, you know, how is this guy, you know, how does he pick up a pen or type at a computer or whatever when, when he's got these claws for fingers? It, it That part never really worked for me. But beyond that, it, it wasn't a bad issue. And uh, I'd be kind of curious now to, to see where certain elements of this did... Uh, did go. I'd uh, I'd stick with the with detective. I really wouldn't go over to Batman because after a while, uh, the Doug Mensch end of the Night Quest, which mm-hmm. is what the overarching story was called, right? Uh, really, like important events happened there, but the detective stories were always a lot more interesting because this was. Either the first or second after Batman 500, mm-hmm. where uh, Jean-Paul Valley defeated Bane, right, and basically you know pissed on Gotham and said this is mine. Um, the reason why he doesn't like Robin is Jean-Paul is wrestling with what is known as the system, which is the conditioning that his father subjected him to when he was a kid. He was originally Azrael, and Azrael was mm-hmm. the avenging angel of the 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 Brotherhood. Oh man, I forget what it was called. But it was some kind of like Knights Templar type organization. And Azrael was their avenging angel. If one of their order uh stepped out of line, Azrael came in and killed them. 
So Jean-Paul, all through his childhood, was trained to be a killing machine, but it was all done through hypnosis. He was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like Jason Bourne, basically, mm-hmm. where it activates, and he's not himself. He is Azrael, and he's wrestling with that. He doesn't like Robin being around because Robin gets in the way of the mission. Right. And uh, I absolutely love the Chuck Dixon, Jean-Paul stories. The Joker story is so freaking awesome. The end to that is just great, uh, especially what Jean-Paul does to the Joker, because Jean-Paul's not messing around. <laughs> right. He's not. He's not Bruce Wayne. He doesn't have the the compassion or the the restraint that... Uh, that Bruce Wayne has, which was kind of the interesting point of Night Quest, was to show, okay, we'll give you a Batman that's a complete blood bloodthirsty vigilante. Look how well that worked out for you. <laughs> and it, it's really funny when you said, you know, you were reading a book with the cover date December 1993. I went, Ugh, and, and that makes it seem like I don't like DC of that era. I love the 90s. In fact, uh, I can kind of probably drop it right here. Views next year, all of 2011, is going to be nothing but the 90s. Because so, I, I feel that that decade has been much maligned. It, it and, has. Uh, it has. And, I, and I'm going to be the cheerleader for a year. Where basically I, I go on a quest of my own to, to kind of say, hey, here are some awesome things that happened. And this was one of them. Uh, I really suggest, you know, if you d- skip Batman, it's fine. You know, skip. Legends of the Dark... Well, no, Legends of the Dark Knight was kind of interesting because that was following Bruce Wayne's adventure after uh, they crossed over with Justice League Task Force for two issues. It showed Bruce Wayne chasing after Tim's father, who wasn't actually the intended kidnap victim. He just got in the way. And the whole thing plays out kind of to a bitter end, to the point where Alfred quits for like a year and a half. Hmm. And... uh the ending sequence of this issue where Tim is discovering the uh, the shooting range was adapted into the Nightfall BBC adaptation. Oh, cool. That is in there. Uh, and that whole confrontation, including the, they will fear me as they never feared him. I have that somewhere, but I don't think I've ever listened to it. I probably need to. It's actually pretty good. It's 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 better, I would say, than the Superman Lives, but that's because the Superman Lives voice acting was very very weak. Whereas in Nightfall, it's a lot stronger, and you get the Alfred from the Batman movies as Alfred. So Michael, oh Goff, wow, that's uh, cool. Played Alfred, so that was good. it's kind of like that Legends of Robin. Have you ever listened to that? Never heard of it. Uh, I'll send it to you. It's it's a full cast radio drama that basically adapts Death in the Family, A Lonely Place of Dying, and the first two Robin miniseries. Oh, wow. And Mark Hamill plays the Joker. Oh, wow. Yeah, I would like to hear that. Wow, I I can't believe I've never heard of that. I stumbled across it on a site that is run by our friend Tor. <laughs> and I didn't even know it existed either. But it was just like Mark Hamill's the Joker. Hell yeah, I'll listen to this. <laughs> so awesome choice, sir. I love that book. This is the first book you've chosen that I could literally see in my head as you were describing it. Because <laughs> I've read it like three or four times. I'm a I'm a fan of the Nightfall Night Quest Night's End storyline. 
some of the execution of it was very wonky, but overall I thought it was a really solid storyline that had a, at its base a really good concept. And, you know, like I said, that concept was what if Bruce Wayne wasn't Batman and the bloodthirsty vigilante that was prevalent in the 90s took over. Right. And it wasn't like, you know, Jean-Paul was killing often people like right away. It was a slow progression to his breaking point. But that's the great thing about the story is that it's not just this black and white. You're seeing this man struggling literally with his own internal demons, trying to be a hero, but failing because he's just not equipped for it. And maybe I'm reading more into Night. (laughs) <laughs> that's really no, I mean, I, that that sounds like, you know, what I recall of it and what I've heard about it, you know, from from other people or other sources or what. So I, I think that's a pretty fair interpretation. I think to a certain degree that probably was what they were going for was, you know, showing the uniqueness and, and everything of Batman – by letting basically the Punisher take over for a while and and be bad. or you know that that kind of archetype that was like you say so prevalent in the nineties mm-hmm. where everything was dark and gritty and violent yeah. and all that yeah they they said okay well you know you keep saying you you know why you know because I remember there being that big thing about you know some fans criticizing Batman that he was a dinosaur compared to guys like the Punisher you know why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker well here they're showing you why you know why is Batman still considered a hero or even a superhero you know compared to these other guys well because he's still got the moral high ground you know yeah. he's not out there just wasting the bad guys and. It- it was similar to what Roger Stern did with The Last Son of Krypton during Reign of the yes. Superman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was exactly like that. And that is the great similarity between Nightfall and the Death and Life of Superman, is that the story wasn't Batman getting his back broken. The story was, how does the world live without Batman? Much like the story isn't that Superman died, but what happens next? Right. And it was really interesting to see those titles go through that because they didn't intend to go that way. And it was interesting even more to see how when they tried to do that with Green Lantern, how ultimately we got a great character out of it. But mm-hmm. the but the execution was a little faulty because it was a tacked-on event, whereas these just kind of happened, I don't want to say organically because it was all planned out. But I don't think either one of them were like, well, we're just going to have this big epic crossover. I think it just happened that way. So, right. But that's just me. <laughs> we ready to move on? Yeah, what you got? Well, I'm going, you said it was December 1993? Uh, no- November. November? Well, I'm going to December of 1983. Awesome. With my Marvel choice. Uh, you have a random number generator. I have a little uh, drawer next to me that has a stack of comics in it that I <laughs> hold out for Back to the Bins. And this one was actually sitting in there because I found a better copy of it for really cheap and picked it up. So this is my kind of reading copy, I guess you could say. It is The Uncanny X-Men, number 176, which has a cover of Cyclops blasting away at I, 
some kind of a tentacle has completely surrounded him, and he's blasting away to the point where he's damaging the X-Men logo. And it has a 60-cent price tag. And you know what era we are in the X-Men, because the X-Men that are in the little Marvel indicia, uh, Wolverine is wearing the brown outfit, Storm is sporting a mohawk, and Rogue does not have big 90s hair. <laughs> she has that kind of pulled back skunk look going on, which I think is cool. That was written by Chris Claremont, drawn by John Romita Jr. before he became a um, devotee of Frank Miller, inked by Bob Wyasek, colored by Glynis Wine, or Ween, I guess that would be, lettered by Tom Orzeszowski, edited by Louise Jones, and of course Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. This is Decisions. So we open up on the splash page where Scott Summer surprises his new bride, Madeline Pryor, with a kiss as she is flying the two to their honeymoon. At first she gives him something of a hard time about this, but decides to hell with it, and it is heavily implied that she puts the plane on autopilot and they have sex right there in the cockpit, which now lives up to its name. Um, <laughs> kind of confused why. It just seems like when you're over the ocean, you don't want to just put the thing on autopilot just so you can go uh, have a row. Uh, well, not a row. Well, maybe a row. Maybe maybe she's into the timey up, timey down. Anyways, Do later you think they... that uh, that the Ohatmu lists the Mile High Club uh, under his uh, group affiliations now? <laughs> We can only hope. <laughs> later, uh, <laughs> later, they discuss the offer Scott was made by his father to go off with the Star Jammers before they run into a nasty storm and a bolt of lightning knocks them out of the sky. And I'm just going to read this because I didn't feel like writing it down. Arga- Agarashima in the north northern Japanese prefecture of Miyago, and I just totally blew that, so I'm just going to keep going. It's in Japan. Uh, Wolverine returns to the clan... Wolverine, excuse me, returns to the clan Yoshida Honor Blade to Mariko, and the two have a heart-to-heart on why she can't marry him, and that the whole thing is kind of a long story, but suffice it to say they were going to get married after Wolverine killed her father. But Mastermind took control of Mariko's mind, and now the clan Nushada has dealings with the underworld, which Mariko has to deal with before they can be happily married. Welcome to Claremont's X-Men. Ah, my head hurts. It's still kind of cool, though. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, Scott and Madeline are fine, but the plane needs some repairs, and they better hurry, too, or the storm they outraced is going to catch up with them. Suddenly, Scott slips and is nearly eaten by a shark, but everything turns out fine, though the shark is dragged to the bottom of the ocean by something with long tentacles. In Washington, D.C., Henry Peter Gyrick, a.k.a. the douchebag, I mean, they, they try to play him as like a good char- like a nice character, like he's got a good, solid backbone, but he is always portrayed as like the jackass of, yeah. of the Marvel Universe. Uh, attends a meeting where some high muckety-mucks are discussing what to do about not only the mutant problem, but also superpowered beings in general. A woman named Val C- Cooper suggests that they fight fire with fire and form a mutant team of their own, an idea Gyrick doesn't like too much, though Val doesn't really seem to care because she sees mutants as a clear and present danger. Back at the plane, Scott almost gets the the craft running and and doesn't, while Madeline makes a really inappropriate joke about the Phoenix Force. 
In New York City, Callisto, the recently deposed leader of the Morlocks, and Mask, uh, her ally, I guess you can say, convinced the skinny white Caliban to help them undermine Storm, who recently wrested control of the Morlocks from Callisto. Back on the plane, Scott and Madeline get it fixed, but Madeline is sucked into the water by what turns out to be a giant squid. Scott dives in after her, and in the battle with the squid, his sunglasses get knocked off, and he is able to drive off the squid because, well, his powers are pretty much uncontrollable. They climb into the plane, and after Scott puts on his Cyclops visor, they are able to get the craft started. In the end, the newlyweds fly off, despite having no instrumentation, and Scott decides to turn down his father's request because he has seen enough death in war, and at the end it says, The Beginning. I really enjoyed this issue, mainly because Claremont's X-Men is a funny thing. Uh, it, it, is, it is often praised as like the greatest run of the team ever, because the man wrote the group for 17 years. And I can slip into just about any era of the X-Men and be comfortable, but afterwards I'm like, that was a really good story. I don't think I really need to read that again for a while. Because it is so dense and so thick that it's kind of like eating a really heavy meal. You don't want to do that every night. But every time I read an issue, I'm like, God, this is so good. And I think the reason why I like it is because it is so heavy in continuity. It makes me feel like this is a really epic story. Like all the little subplots that they were talking about. Through this issue, the the thing with Caliban and Callisto, the thing with Val Cooper and Henry Peter Gyrick, which eventually leads into the formation of Freedom Force, which has like the Blob and Pyro and I think Avalanche and a, and a couple other e- supposedly evil mutants working for the government, you know, and the whole thing with Madeline Pryor and what ends up happening with her and Inferno, I mean, it, it's all like in the future, but it's kind of neat to go back and read the the beginnings of those problems and those plot lines. Uh, John Romita Jr.'s art, it's not bad, but it looks like he's trying to do Paul Smith. Yeah. And I loved Paul Smith's work on the X-Men. I thought it was really excellent. So it's kind of weird to see somebody doing kind of a, I don't want to say a half-ass impersonation, but uh, the art here is good, but it is not as strong as other eras of the X-Men. Uh, but overall, outside of the fact that the bad guy in this was a giant squid, and, and Scott Summers fought it in the in, underwater, where apparently his optic blasts work just like above water, and it ends with him flying the plane off wearing nothing but a pair of shorts and his Cyclops mask. <laughs> Which is really bizarre visual. Um, overall, though, it's just it was just a really fun read. I'm glad I dug this out and read it. I really am. And it's full of great ads. It's got a Burger Time ad. I love that game. Uh, Kids Love Saturdays, which has the Super Pac-Man on there. <laughs> uh, ABC's lineup kind of sucked, though. Best of Scooby-Doo, The Little Rascals and the Richie Rich Show, Monchi Cheese, Pac-Man, Rubik the Amazing Cube, The Litter, The Littles, The Puppies' Further Adventures, and the new Scooby and Scrappy-Doo with Menudo. 
Man, all of those shows sucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the center page spread ad, hell yeah. It's NBC's lineup, yo, with Spider-Man and his amazing friends and the Incredible Hulk, Thundar the Barbarian, Alvin and the Chipmunks. That's what all the cool kids were watching right there. The Shirt Tales. Oh, God, I don't know about the Shirt Tales, but... Uh, Smurfs, Mr. T. (laughs) Mr. T, fool. Uh, Alvin and the Chipmunks. (sighs) But it's that shot of the Hulk just rising up that that's like iconically stuck in my head because you saw that ad so many times in the books around this time you got dr strange hawking a subscription offer and i gotta say the 80s had some of the best subscription offer art in it with the carrot from marvel mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about oh yeah like they, ugh, just love looking at that stuff that hulk show you were talking about that's uh that's where i first heard stan lee's voice because he used to introduce every show of that and i remember that very well yep. used to love that show very much part of my childhood i watched the hell out of that show i really did i loved it uh even though it was a little wacky at times <laughs> and i can watch it anytime i want now through undisclosable means um <laughs> James Bond uh, role-playing in Her Majesty's Secret Service, which actually has some neat art on it. Uh, oddly enough, it makes me want to play the game outside of the fact that I like James Bond, but I'm not the biggest fan of James Bond, if that makes any sense. Right. And, and it has the Star Frontiers ad from TSR. Oh, yeah. And a Kool-Aid Man ad on the inside back cover and on the outside back cover, Cubert, which I freaking hated. <laughs> I never liked Cubert. I remember playing Cubert, going, "Why am I playing this game?" Yeah, it's, it's funny you say stupid. that. I, I was always that way too because I sucked at that game and don't know why <laughs> I spent so much money playing it because I was never any good at it. But no, it, it was it was it was great to sit down with a comic that I could sink my teeth into. That had you know. Claremont wrote a densely packed comic. There's no getting around that. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, really, to me. Uh, you know, he 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 set a standard for storytelling that makes it seem kind of sad that later on he was kind of brushed aside for the new flashy artists that were coming up. Right. Because I've read interviews with Jim Lee and especially with Wilsh Portacio. Well, they're like, yeah, we saved that book. That book sucked, and we came on, and it was good again. And it's like, no, I've read before you. It was rather popular. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't like, I, you know, I'm not at all a fan of, you know, when when the people turn on a given writer or artist or whatever, you know, that, that used to be a legend and now all of a sudden everybody wants to, you know, join the bandwagon of, of pig piling on them and, and bring in the hate. I, I feel like they do that with John Byrne. And in a lot of ways, I, I definitely feel like that happens with Chris, Chris Claremont, you know. And Chris Claremont, man, you know, the, the guy was awesome in the aspect of he he was one of the very best with being able to juggle a lot of uh, plot threads and storylines and and things like that, and he's gotten a bad reputation about that over the years of you know all the dangling plot threads. But 
Yeah, there may have been a lot of dangling ones, but he had a lot of things. I mean, he was really doing a juggling act every issue and adding a little more and a little more to the overall mythos. And so, you know, some things are naturally going to fall by the wayside because you've only got so many, you know, pages to play with every month. Mm -hmm. But he did, you know, keep so many things in the air all at once. I I really, I respect that. I, I, I really thought that he was good. I mean, I think it was his writing, you know, especially in the during the times post burn when sometimes that book really did suffer from some piss poor art, and mm-hmm. in my opinion anyway. Yeah, I think it was his strong writing that kept the book going, that that kept people interested because you were still invested in the X Men as a family unit. You know, you came to really care about the characters. And that was something that comes from the writing, not from the art. So, and yeah. more than anything, it gave you something to come back to. Right. You know, it gave you a book to get into. It gave you a book to follow. Which that's the type of that's the type of reader I am. I want you to give me something to to come back month to month. Now, was it always you know pure gold? Well, no, no. You know, in a seventeen year period, you are not going to have knocking it out of the park. You know, every single month, it was kind of a slow start with the Cockermart. I think the book really picked up when Byrne came on. Mm-hmm. You know, after Byrne left, Cockrum came back, and I think it kind of fumbled. But that's more to the fact that they had just done this huge storyline where one of the members was killed, and you got to kind of play with that. Paul Smith came on; the book kind of picked up again, and th- it was this period in like '83 where all the seeds of the ex explosion of the X-Men in like 87 and 88 would happen. And it's really funny to think, you know, Jim Lee came onto the book and it wasn't an instant rock star success. You know, my friend Ryan uh, told me, because he was buying X-Men in like 87 and 88 and 89 when Jim Lee first came on. And for a while there, Jim Lee's first issues were like sitting in the 50 cent pile. Mm Mm-hmm. Because no one had picked up that this guy's a superstar, and then 1990 happened, and it's like, oh, oh, everybody loves you know the X Men now, and it became like this gigantic thing. And right in the middle of all that, the guy that built this empire, you know, without which Jim Lee could not come onto the book and become the superstar that he still is, pretty much. You know, they're like, ah, we're not going to listen to you. We're going to listen to the flashy kids because they're, there's what's selling the books. And, you know, this is why everyone, when it was announced Bob Harris was becoming the editor-in-chief of DC, I went, oh, crap. Because Bob Harris was the one that sided with the, with the artists and what was popular. And that's not a really good track record to me for a guy to run. And, you know, his his editor-in-chief status of Marvel towards the late 90s wasn't exactly stellar either. So <laughs> I just plain have issues with the guy. But, you know, whatever. I'm not just reading the books. Plain anyways. have issues. So, well, I've got thousands of them, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I don't have issues. I have a subscription. <laughs> so... That's all I got for this. Excellent. Well, do we have time to hit a few uh, emails? Yeah, let's, let's knock out a few emails. That'll, that'll make everybody happy, I think. Um, first one we got is from Eugene from... Gr- I feel like suddenly we're like on the Larry King show. 
<laughs> Eugene from Greenville, go ahead. Says, two requests, any question? Greetings, Scott and Mike. First of all, love the show. Please make more. Okay. Um, second, you since you mentioned why don't you go ahead and do the hostess ad where Thor battles the space hillbillies? <laughs> well, I can't because somebody already did. Oh, we can still do it, though. <laughs> it's been long enough. We could do it again. Third, I don't know if you mentioned this on the show, but would you consider doing uh, Captain America Volume 1, number 378? Sure. Yeah. I'll consider it. Yeah. I, I've, I looked it up. I do have it in my collection. It is uh, an unread issue, so sure. Which which issue is that? That, that That's not... Let me pull it back up here. I had it up a second ago. and 378? Yeah. 378 is... Uh, it's part of Streets of Poison. It shows a cap uh, drawn by Ron... I think this is Ron Ron Lim. Lim. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's Hell yeah. smacking the hell out of crossbones on the cover of it. Well, that's enough for me. Yeah, it looks good. I can. I, that, that story had a really lousy premise, but... I'm uh, I'm up for a Marvel next time, so I just might make it Captain America 378. And we should both read it and then not tell each other that we're both reading it. <laughs> End up spending the entire episode talking about one comic. And finally, everyone keeps asking, commenting on recent eps of Smallville and Brave and the Bold, have you had a chance to watch Justice League Crisis on Two Earths yet? And what did you think? That's all from now. Eugene from Greenville. Well, we almost watched it together. That's right, yeah. But it got really late, so you had to go. Um, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. I thought the I thought they did things with superhero fight scenes and that that I had never seen before, and that's saying a lot after Justice League Unlimited, where they really raised the bar. The scene where you know the Flash was basically wrapping the extruded man all over the room, <laughs> and it was all in the background while the other people were fighting. I was just like, that is so epic. Uh, I think the weakest point of that story was Billy Baldwin's Batman. And since he ended up being kind of like the hero of the piece, essentially, since he had to take on Owlman, I was just like, wow, you did not lead with strength there, folks. But it had Chris Noth as Lex Luthor, which I really liked. Hold on a second. Siren is really close. That's weird. Sorry. <laughs> I heard a siren outside. Um, but also, Mark Harmon as Superman was just excellent. Yeah. God, he just nailed nailed who that character was be. It was very direct. It's just like, there's people in trouble. We gotta go. It's just like, yeah. I need to see it again, because I've only seen it the one time. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, but I'm kind of vague on, on the story now, but i tell you one thing. Um, I had the, the score to it on my MP3 player for the longest time. And the music in that one is great. It's really, really good. So I, I need to watch it again though. But yeah, I liked it. I thought it was pretty good. And, uh, it's funny. I was just thinking for, I can't remember why I was thinking about this last night, but I was, got to thinking about, um, Ultraman. Is he? Does he have the Clark Kent identity in his world? I didn't see it. 
I can't remember if I've ever seen Ultraman have he, an alter ego or he if he was stays Ultraman all the time. He was an oh. astronaut originally that got exposed to kryptonite, and every time he was exposed to kryptonite further, he got more and more powers. No, that was in the Silver Age. Right. So I don't think after he became Ultraman, he kept a secret identity. It seemed like really useless, actually. Yeah. See, I couldn't even remember that much about his origins. I, I figured he was basically Superman, just evil. I, I couldn't remember what his whole deal was. But yeah, now that you say that, that does ring a bell, because I remember when Luthor came to his world in uh, DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1, which is very likely the first time I ever saw Ultraman. Mm-hmm. And he held up Kryptonite, and, and Ultraman was like, you dumbass, Kryptonite just makes me stronger. And he's like, don't you think I know that? Or something to that effect. It was a really good scene between the two of them. That That's a book that I would love for us to cover. We, actually, we do need to cover that on uh, on Tales sometime. That's a great, great story. Pretty sure that was my first exposure to uh, to uh, Ultraman. May even have been my first exposure to Earth Two Superman. I can't remember, but at least certain elements. You know, the fact that he was married to Lois Lane. I'm pretty sure that's where I learned that, and it's probably the first time I ever saw um, Alexei Luthor and all that. And so, love that book. Very fond memories of that book. Euro trash Lex Luthor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see here. What else have we got for an email? We got one here from Tom Panarese. Now, um, before I read this, I, I just want to apologize. We, we're going way back on these. Um, I'm noticing the dates on these are like May. I apologize that we're so far behind on, uh, on our email because when I saw Tom's name, I was just going to say, wow, we haven't heard from him for, you know, in a while. But that may not be true. We're just really backed up on the emails. So. <laughs> So anyway, how's it going, Tom? Uh, he writes in Batman Yesterday versus Today. Scott and Mike, I liked both uh, Back to the Bins and last week's Tales from the JSA uh, today. And in one of last week's Tales from the J. I listened to both Back to the Bins and last week's Tales of the Oh, JSA I thought he said today. liked. I can't read. Let me start that over. I listened to both Back to the Bins and last week's Tales from the JSA today. And in one of those, Mike had a great rant slash whine about how the modern dark Batman is a paranoid lunatic who's seemingly omnipotent. That's paraphrased, of course. I'm so glad I'm not the only person out there who thinks this. In fact, there's more. Uh, that's more or less what caused me to drop both Batman and Detective Comics a few years ago after nearly 20 years of being a faithful reader. My first exposure to Batman was in the greatest Batman stories ever told collection, and my favorite version of the character was the one in the 1970s and early 80s, when I felt uh, that they did the dark-slash-noir thing really well, but didn't turn him into a brooding sad sack. Bruce Wayne was, at one point, as important a character as Batman, and I really missed that. So thanks for all that, and thanks for that Untold Legend recap a few weeks ago. I never owned those issues and had the black and white paperback book that I bought through the Scholastic Book Club when I was in elementary school, uh, but I might try tracking them down in the near future. Uh, As a side note, uh, I just recently got that. Um, Our buddy uh, Alan Leach Jr. sent me this awesome package with just tons of great stuff in it and amongst the things that were in there was the black and white paperback to uh, untold legend of the batman love that it was awesome 
says, uh, I do have one question, though. Are the Batman in the 70s and Batman in the 80s trades worth buying considering I already own the greatest Batman stories, one and two, greatest Joker stories, and the Strange, strange Apparitions trade? I'd like to get my hands on some Batman stories from that era, and they're rare in the bins at my local comic store or too expensive. And I've heard you mention some guy named Tor Rent, but I don't exactly know where to find him. Thanks, and keep up the great work, Tom Panarese. Um, I don't have either of those, so I really can't say if they're worth owning or not. I have the other books that he, he says he already mentioned. Uh, I got, actually, a, a lot of Greatest Batman Stories 1, 2, and The Joker, uh, even though I only I already had one of the Greatest Batman Stories for really cheap off of eBay. Um for finding Batman stories from that era, though, I'd really see if you can get your hands on some of those Neil Adams collections. Yes, yeah. Uh, they're they're hardcover and they're kind of expensive, but they're chock full of Neil Adams Batman yeah, stories. So. Yeah, it's some of the best <laughs> Batman you're ever likely to read. So yeah, there you go. That's a, that's an excellent suggestion. Only reason I didn't pick them up at DragonCon is I really didn't have the money, but he had them all there and he would have signed them. Uh, but I didn't have the hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, they are, they are pricey because I've been wanting to own them for a while. And you know me, I'm not a reprints kind of guy, but I'd like to have those just so that you know it was conveniently all in one place. But and the and the, the coloring is great, and the production values of the actual hardcover are fantastic too. Mm-hmm. But um, I'd pick up the '70s one. I mean, there's going to be some crossovers from like the greatest Batman stories. Right. Uh, trades just because they they do that. I can't tell you how many trade paperbacks I have Superman related that have. Uh, must there be a Superman in it? Right. Um, but uh, conversely, with those trades, uh, at least I can only speak for the Superman ones. There's some interesting stories in there. So if you can find them on the cheap, yeah. And by that I mean go on eBay and don't pay less than don't pay more than like seven eight dollars for them. Uh, I would I would really suggest getting those. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is you know just talking totally out of my ass here because I don't have any idea what stories are in either of those volumes. Just the simple fact that uh, you know Batman in the seventies and eighties was the best Batman in my personal opinion. You know I, I would feel like you probably can't go wrong that you know, you're, you're more than likely going to get some really good reading material in there. So yeah, I would, I would really go with that. And it's funny, Tom, I mean, your story parallels mine so much, you know, you're talking about, you just recently, you know, dropped the bat books for the reasons that you stated, but you know, I, I could take, you know, that entire first part you talked about and, and say that for myself, that's exact, exactly my, uh, story with Batman too, you know, having collected it for years and years and years and loved the character and never missed, you know, anything he was in. But all of a sudden he got to this dark period and I was just like, no, I think I'm done with this. It just didn't resemble anymore the character that, that I loved. What's funny is that, you know, our stories are separated by, you know, what, almost 20 years because I left Batman you know, right in the, the period we were talking about in the beginning of this show. So <laughs> so everybody everybody has their era of, you know, the, their favorite incarnation or their favorite version of a character. And mine was, you know, the, the late 70s, uh, early 80s. 
looks like in Batman in the 70s, the only story that's also in the greatest Batman stories ever told is There Is No Hope in Crime Alley, if you'll excuse the clicking while I find these. Uh, And I can't see any repeats in Batman in the 80s. In fact, it looks like all of the Batman in the 80s stories happen... I think before year one. So that's interesting. That is interesting. The one is uh, written by Barbara J. Randall. So that's kind of cool. So, um, oh, and and, and, and just to say, he said he got that untold tales from the, uh, the Scholastic Book Club. I can't tell you how many times I would pour through that looking for something comic book related because I really (laughs) didn't care for anything else. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.